0: This is Melissa Agnes, author of Crisis Ready, Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now,
0: here's your host, Douglas Burdett.
1: Hello. Thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover the smartest ideas behind what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales Book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is a wonderful event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm going to be leading the workshop Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers with my friend and past marketing book podcast guest, Rebecca Geyer, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, An Inbound Marketing Guide to Reaching Technical Audiences. For details, go to contentmarketingworld.com, and for the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code MARKETINGBOOK, and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of his drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details in a few minutes. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Melissa Agnes to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, Crisis Ready, Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World published by Mascot Books. Melissa Agnes, an authority on crisis preparedness, reputation management, and brand protection, is an author, keynote speaker, commentator, university lecturer, and advisor to a variety of organizations faced with the greatest risks. She has worked with NATO, financial firms, technology companies, healthcare organizations, cities and municipalities, law enforcement agencies, nonprofits, manufacturers, and energy companies to help them understand risk and prepare to withstand even the most devastating of events. Melissa is also the editor of the Crisis Ready blog, a contributor to Forbes, and a go-to source for the press with recent coverage, including The Wall Street Journal, Vibe Magazine, USA Today, and many others. And, interesting fact, as a kid growing up in Montreal, she was adorable and a bit strange. Melissa, <laughs> congratulations on Crisis Ready and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So explain what you mean, and it's all it's all good. Explain what you mean when you were a bit of a strange child. It's
0: uh I, I still am a strange person. So
1: <laughs> Well, you'll fit right in with me.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there you go. What you're referring to is the interlude in Crisis Ready, and that is I see risk. I've always been, this. the way that my brain functions. It f- functions on, if I were to to describe it in a linear kind of format, it's I see risk everywhere. I see my brain then jumps to what are the mitigation strategies and tactics for those risks. And then the third piece of that is what are the opportunities through the mitigation? That's the trajectory that my brain takes. And so as a kid, I mean, think of, I, I'll think of how just painfully annoying that must have been for my little sister, who was always very adventurous. And I'm not saying that I'm not adventurous, but I kind of evaluate the risk of, and usually the risk of with her was how to protect her. So we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And if my dad, who didn't have a car at the time, wanted to take us out for a treat, which very seldom occurred, downtown, I knew that we had to take the subway or the metro to get there. And for me, if it was just me and my dad, no problem. But if my sister was involved, that was too much risk for Stephanie because, you know, anything can happen. She's too mischievous. She'll end up on the tracks getting hit by one of the subway carts or, you know, she'll get abducted. This was the way that, you know, my brain worked at seven years
1: old. (laughs) This was the way you felt. Stephanie did not feel this way. She was not concerned. Stephanie did
0: not feel that way. No, (laughs) not even a little.
1: Well, fortunately, you found a line of work that plays right into those, you know, character traits. So I did. Yeah, that's that's terrific. Well, tell us the story of how this book came to be.
0: The book came. So I always knew that there was a book in me, and there's multiple books in me. This is just my first. But I knew that I was not going to write it until I had that. I knew what was going to set it apart because. I'm extremely passionate about the subject and the topic of crisis management, crisis preparedness, issue management, um, building brand invincibility. And yet, the dozens of books that currently exist or currently existed on the market before mine put me to sleep, which said a lot. So, if it put me to sleep, my goodness, you know, what a what an unpleasant experience for those who are tasked with reading it. And I wanted the opposite. I wanted a book that gave everything, every single thing. People come to me now and they say, you you wrote yourself out of a job. And I said, that's the point. That was the <laughs> right. point. Yes. And so I wanted to give everything, not just high level theory. I wanted to give theory and practice and, you know, tactical strategies that are actually implementable and the way that kind of, I approach the framework that I use with clients and all of the different dynamics and pieces involved with that. But I also wanted it to be an enjoyable, if not fun experience. So that went into the writing itself. I I hope that the writing itself is a fun and engaged experience, but then not just that, but I flew two times to my publisher in DC with stacks of books saying, feel the texture of this page and look at the way ink sets on here and look at these margins. And I don't like the texture of this cover and the design. It's a two color print. So I wanted to bring the book to life a little bit more. So the Even way- the
1: binding. I noticed there was... Uh- Thank
0: you. The binding was important to <laughs> yeah. me. And my publisher laughed at me because I would say, like, I would pick up books and I would scroll through them kind of just quickly. And I would say, I don't like the chunkiness of this. And they would look at me and say, pardon me? <laughs> the what? And so then, you know, I made them, ch- not I made them, but they were tasked with, in order to fulfill all of my demands and expectations, they ended up finding a new printer and the book. The book is I've done some some cool things in my career, you know, like everybody, but the book is the thing that I am the most proud of in my professional career. So that was the purpose behind the book.
1: Well, you should be proud. And also, after reading it, it's the kind of thing where, this comes up in marketing, where I, I think at the end of the book, some a lot of people are going to read it and go, we have got to get her in here now. And the larger issue is that in marketing, people say, Oh, well, I don't want to share my secret sauce. I don't want to share how I do things. But the fact is, when you do that, you actually get more business. It was almost like there was another author on the podcast, Marcus Sheridan, who wrote a book called They Ask You Answer, all about content marketing and that type of thing. And he had been a he had owned a pool company in the past and he had a a lot of videos he would make and he simply had a video that said, Here's how you winterize a pool. And it was on a 10-minute video or something, but it just included all the steps, you know, film with an iPhone or something like that. And instead of not getting business for how to winterize a pool, he got a deluge of phone calls saying, I watched your video about exactly how to winterize a pool. That's great. Can you come do it for us? (laughs) It's too much work. Right. Well, I think that that's what's going to happen. You've got it there. This is a great desk reference. I think your book is going to be a career builder, or if somebody doesn't have the guidance and they're in the middle of a a life and death, for the business anyway, crisis, they're going to wish that they had it. But let me ask you something. In the book, you say that the more you think you don't need a crisis-ready program the more <laughs> desperately you actually do need one. What, what do you say to the to the listener or the person who's thinking, that's great, Melissa Agnes, but I, I can't imagine how this could affect my company. Hmm.
0: So that's one of my crisis-ready rules, and I love that you're referencing it. The reason that that's there, the reason that I put it that way, is that I if you don't believe that you need a crisis-ready program, Odds are, in my experience, you believe that you are either not prone to risk or that perhaps you've managed risk in the past and, you know, five five or 10 years ago and you managed it effectively, but you aren't in tune with the fact that times have changed and there are new challenges and new real-time realities that are inevitable and extremely overpowering in times of viral issue or, or crisis. And so for those who may not be wondering, it's, you know, it doesn't need to be a cumbersome undertaking to be crisis ready. It's about it's about mindset. It's about culture. It's about having I say I have a brain that sees risk everywhere that enables me to prevent the preventable and be prepared in an effective way for the unpreventable. And that's what it's about. Being crisis ready there's a reason that the book isn't called crisis preparedness, which you might think is synonymous with crisis ready. Mm-hmm. And it's it, to me, it's not. Crisis ready is a term that, I mean, it's two words that I put together that actually have, for me, I, there's a very clear definition on what that means. And as a high level, it's you have an entire team that is trained, empowered, prepared to understand precisely how to detect risk, so what risk looks like, then to take that Detected risk and to assess its material impact on the organization. So, is it an issue, and therefore it's just you know business as usual and hyperdrive, or is it a crisis that needs to be escalated to leadership? And how do you go about doing that? And then you're prepared to manage whether it's an issue or a crisis. You're in a position. Your entire team is in a position to manage the incident in a way that doesn't just put it to bed so you can move on, but allows you to manage it so that you actually foster increased trust and credibility in your organization by those who who matter most to your business. That is what being crisis-ready is.
1: A real culture of being crisis-ready. Yes. Are there examples of businesses or organizations that have had crises that you would normally think, wow, that that did not strike me as as a kind of organization that would have a real crisis? I mean, like maybe something going on with an employee or you talk about cybersecurity and how that affects a lot of companies.
0: Yeah, well, I talk about cybersecurity in the book because I wanted to walk. So I said earlier that this is the roadmap. I give everything, no matter where your organization currently sits on the spectrum of crisis ready. The book takes you through, right through to what I call building brand invincibility, and it's it's not necessarily that an organization, every organization, whether you're a solopreneur or you're you know a global leader with thousands upon thousands of employees uh, worldwide you have there's risk that you are prone to that can severely impact your livelihood your business your reputation etc and so but what i think is interesting to me and it's going to be the new intro of the book in its next print run is what happened with crockpot and this is us earlier this year do you remember that
1: mm, yeah t- talk about that that wasn't in the book but
0: it's not in the book it's great
1: example It it happened
0: after when the book was already sent to print, but it will be in the next version. Yes.
1: Great example of a surprise. They probably probably had never thought of this.
0: Nobody can anticipate what happened. Nobody could have anticipated what happened. So for listeners, This Is Us, which is one of the most popular television shows on the air right now, today. And they, over the last couple of years, they've been kind of one of their main characters, you know that he's he's died, but they, you don't know how. So there's been buildup to the how behind his death. And in January of this year of 2018, they revealed how. And the reveal was that Jack Pearson, so the patriarch of the family, was cleaning the kitchen one evening, set the slow cooker, generic slow cooker, not a crockpot machine, a generic slow cooker on, as many families do. And then he went to bed. The slow cooker in this story was a ancient, ancient, you know, piece of machinery that short-circuited and set flames to the house, and Jack died of smoke inhalation. Now, the, the I had never known—I don't watch TV, so I didn't know about that show prior to this occurring, this, you know, viral issue occurring. And I went back and I watched the five-minute segment of this storyline— And it almost brought me to tears. So this was a beautifully created piece of, you know, not film, but just an episode of the episode. And it caters to a millions of people who absolutely love, love, love this show. So if we put ourselves in the place of those who were watching the show that evening, they we're sitting at home with their family, watching the show, and this beautifully crafted storyline comes up. They're emotionally compelled by you know, this story and finding out how Jack dies. And then their brain goes to, oh my goodness, we have a crockpot machine. I don't want my family to die. <laughs> right. That's the jump that the brain makes. So I talk about in the book, you know, how to anticipate negative virality against your organization, and you need to look at the emotional compellingness of a story and its relatability. Those two components together equal potential for escalation of risk. And so, as a result, Crockpot woke up the next morning and the story had gone viral that many, many many customers were so devastated and so irrationally fearful of this becoming their reality, their risk to their family that they were many like thousands of customers were threatening to throw out their crockpot machines and never buy from the company again. Mm. This is not something we can anticipate. This is a fictional storyline, a fictitious character that led to a real live, you know, negative incident that had potential negative impact, long-term impact on this wonderful brand. And what I loved about this was a lot of organizations that aren't crisis ready would look at that and say, come on, people, this is ridiculous. Our machines in the history of our company have never short-circuited or set flames to, to a home. They are designed specifically not to do that Either a lot of organizations would say either let's not respond because this is irrational and it will just die down, or they would come out with fact, 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 fact to mm-hmm. counter. But one of my crisis ready rules is is an, or another one of my crisis ready rules is emotion always overpowers reason. And Crockpot was so crisis ready in the sense that they quickly quickly detected the threat, they were able to assess its material impact on the organization, so they knew that in a worst case scenario we're going to lose these customers and i personally do not believe that any one customer is statistically insignificant or should be perceived culturally as such so it doesn't matter if it was 5 customers or thousands which it happened to be you know thousands in this case they were they risk losing them and they risk leaving this lingering negative sentiment, connotation, emotional connection to their brand as a result, which could have had impact on them in a negative capacity further down the road. So they understood that this was not something to laugh at or to gawk at. And so they responded with and then this was the other piece of it with emotional intelligence, where they understood that emotion always overpowers reason. So they couldn't just come out and spew facts. They had to validate the emotions of these customers that had this irrational fear in order for them to, you know, to be led into the heart so that they can get into their minds, the logical side of their minds. And so what Crockpot did was they quickly jumped on Twitter, which is where it was unfolding. And before that, they didn't have a Twitter account. So that was genius, like brilliant that they were quickly able to do that. And they came out, their first response to the to the incident was, and I'm paraphrasing, were messages along the lines of, we are so devastated that this is how Jack died. Our hearts are broken with you. We are still reeling from the grief of yesterday's show. But we want you to know that Crockpot values your family's safety and that our machines in the history of the company have never short-circuited and this is you know never set flames to a house they're designed specifically not to do this and here is all the information you need to know for us to prove that to you they were brilliant in their response in their detection in their assessment and as a result they not just salvaged those companies or those customers but they you know i say being crisis ready when you're crisis ready the definition to me of successful crisis management is that you come out of a crisis with increased trust and credibility in the brand and crockpot achieve that
1: mm-hmm. you either it seems like you either you're either going to subtract or add you're or not going to you're not going well i don't know it seems like it seemed like after reading the book that every one of these crises is an opportunity to either add or subtract to your brand invincibility it just didn't seem like there'd be a whole lot that were neutral
0: so in it depends on the organization in issue management you're either going to add or subtract because you can if you negative if you not negatively if you mismanage an issue you're going to chip away at the trust and credibility of your organization over time you're not mm-hmm. going to necessarily escalate it strategically you know, right away to crisis level, but you will chip away at its trust and and credibility within your brand um, or towards your brand. In terms of crisis management, it's possible, depending on the organization, to kind of remain at neutral where you didn't increase, you didn't decrease, you you just kind of go back to business as usual and people kind of just shrug their heads and go, eh, and move on. And um, and I'm talking about long-term impact here when we talk about crisis. Mm -hmm. And that depends on, that's more for, Large organizations like, you know, United Airlines that can commit gaff after gaff after gaffe because they have a culture that puts process and bottom line above people, which is the mm-hmm. opposite of another one of my crisis ready rules, which is people above process and bottom line always.
1: And I should add, uh, Melissa, that on the the Marketing Book podcast, when we are talking about crisis communications, by podcast law, I am required to mention United Airlines. So thank you.
0: <laughs> there you go. But. Uh, because of the size of the organization, because of its reach, because of its, you know, economical impact and its pricing and just, they kind of, people kind of shrug after and they bounce back. They don't bounce back higher. They don't necessarily bounce back lower. They kind of just scave at neutral. That will not, that's not sustainable long-term, but there are a few cases of large organizations with major backing, major funding, and, you know, unique uh, market positioning that have that added bonus, I suppose, or opportunity, not opportunity, it's a missed opportunity, but they have the ability to kind of get away with more than the rest of the of companies out there. Unfortunately, I'm not saying that's a good thing.
1: So I, I keep going back to the person who may be uh, listening to this or they maybe work for a boss who's sitting there with their arms crossed thinking, ah, I don't know. And But, you know, they're thinking, well, maybe maybe we should do something. And they say, well, great, Let's, maybe we should put some kind of plan together. And, you know, maybe, maybe one that will collect dust. But you say that today choosing to rely on a crisis management plan is actually no longer sufficient and it, and it actually puts you at a disadvantage what yes, do you mean does. what do you mean by that
0: I mean that so the act of planning is invaluable that in order to be crisis ready you planning is a part of that it it's no longer to your advantage to create that plan to put that plan in a file or on a shelf and allow it to you know collect dust and think that in the event of a crisis, you can reach for that plan and just follow it. And you'll be
1: inoculated.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that used to kind of sort of be the case. That was permissible. It was, you know, it provided value. But the reality today is that with the real-time news cycle, with social media, with, you know, the fact that everybody has a phone in their pocket that they can broadcast from at a moment's notice or a second's notice, all of these impacts today that, influence and present impact to in times of viral issue and crisis. By the time you reach for that plan, you're already behind. Mm -hmm. Expectations are already surging. Customers are already expecting, you know, the threshold of expectation today starts much higher than it used to. And it starts at minute (laughs) 0.1. So It really is about having a team, your entire organization, that I look at the plan, and I call it a program, first of all, never a plan. A program is cultural. It can be adapted into the culture, whereas a plan is a linear, you know, non – it's it's really non-effective.
1: But crises are usually linear, Right.
0: Cry- no crisis <laughs> <kidding>. okay okay <laughs> I can't I think see you, so. I think the
1: engineers are probably thinking yes yes it's it's true, but you know it, it brings to mind it was, it was so clear in the book it brought to mind two quotes which i don 't think were in the book. one was by Mike Tyson, which is everybody has a plan everybody has a plan until they 're punched in the face. <laughs> Yes, but the other one was a, a quote I, I've seen over and over from General Eisenhower, who later became U.S. president, and he said, "In preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable." Yes. It's like he was waiting for your book to one day, day be written. So I think that that, that kind of goes back to the to the culture. Uh, but I want to I want to change. Uh, I want to change gears here, and ask you to explain something that some listeners or 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 managers or CEOs may be surprised, and that is you say that the press release is dead, Melissa Comma, Agnes.
0: Come on, people! <laughs> exclamation.
1: You say, yeah, it's it's the press release is dead. What, Melissa Agnes? What are you talking about?
0: I am talking about the fact that there are so many organizations that kind of what I said earlier about you know you can manage an orga- a crisis in the past and think that those same tactics and strategies are going to be applicable today and they're not. And the press release they're okay when you're talking about crisis communication it's not about it's not about crafting a press release and sending it to the wire. It's about understanding who you're speaking to who you need to speak with how you're going to meet those expectations and communicate it in a way that delivers value and substance in a consistent and timely manner that meets their concerns addresses their concerns and meets their expectations and the press release does not do that <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the press release is it can can potentially be a secondary means of communication but it should not be your primary and in this beautiful day and age. We have, just like we have all of this, we have these myriad of, you know, things that can go against us in a crisis in real time. We also have these unprecedented opportunities in, within our pockets that enable us to be our own voice, you know, regain control of our own narrative and communicate in an emotionally relatable way with those who matter most to our business directly in their pockets. We don't have to rely on the wire and for the media to pick up that, to choose to pick up the messaging of that wire and to run with it. Today, we can take that control onto ourselves. And that's a beautiful and very powerful thing. Now, I will caveat and say that, or or say that there is a caveat, that if there are specific types of crises in specific industries where regulator where that are highly regulated that regulators and lawmakers can potentially so this is a potential risk can potentially be still very dated behind the times which is uncommon or shouldn't be it comes as a shock to anybody where they say that the only recognized form of communication to investors or to the market that we recognize is a press release. So in those extremely rare circumstances, and that is less and less and less and less and less, and less the case, um, so no longer an excuse. But that would be the, the one caveat to why, when would it be a primary means of communication alongside all of your other primary means of communication.
1: Yes, not a substitute for. No, it's the period no, no, at the no. end no. of the sentence. Okay, here's your news release, Mr. Regulator. <laughs> Still go forth and do all the, the things you should be doing.
0: Well, and the reality is that it's it's about understanding who your stakeholder groups are and the best way to communicate with them and meet their expectations. If you are a highly regulated organization or if, you, if your organization sits within a highly regulated industry, then regulators are one of your stakeholder groups. So you're going to evaluate that anyways throughout the process of developing your crisis-ready program.
1: We're going to take a break here so I can talk about one of my favorite things, single malt scotch. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018. I'm going back this September to Cleveland for this awesome conference, and I'm looking forward to meeting more of you just like I did last year. That was so much fun. I'm going to be doing a workshop with my friend and past Marketing Book Podcast guest, Rebecca Geier, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, An Inbound Marketing Guide to Reaching Technical Audiences. The workshop is Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers. If you're a manufacturing marketer and are able to attend, I just want to warn you, when this workshop is over, we may end up having to rush you to the emergency room at the Cleveland Clinic because you are going to be at risk of overdosing on so many awesome practical, actionable marketing insights that are going to grow your manufacturing business and boost your career. To get the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code marketing book and they'll knock another $100 off your ticket price. That's right. That's $100. You can then spend buying both of his drinks once you get there and still have money left over. But enough about that. Let's talk about scotch. If that rock bottom price to attend Content Marketing World isn't enough incentive, here's one more. When you register using promo code marketing book, there's also a bottle of scotch in it for me from the nice people at Content Marketing World. We're talking win-win here, people. But now let's say you can't attend Content Marketing World and you feel bad about that. Well, you can still send me a bottle of single malt scotch, seriously. The mailing address is at marketingbookpodcast.com. Do it! But let's say you can attend Content Marketing World and you're thinking, well, Douglas, I like your podcast, but I'm just not yet ready to send you a bottle of scotch. But I would like to show my appreciation for what you're doing here. I've got you covered, too. Here's what you do. First, pour yourself a drink. Have two. And then go to iTunes or Apple Podcast as they call themselves now and leave a one-sentence review for the Marketing Book Podcast. And then message me on LinkedIn and tell me which one is yours so I can raise a glass and toast your review and your good taste in podcasts. <laughs> and now, back to the show. So let me keep your blood pressure up and ask you to explain why does Melissa Agnes get so annoyed with the term social media crisis?
0: You you you're doing good. I really do. Thank you for saying that. I really do because it if you think that some if you call something a social media crisis, you are hindering your opportunity to see the bigger picture, to understand the bigger picture that you need to be seeing and understanding, and to get to the root of the problem. The reality is that social media is a factor of every crisis today and every viral issue. It, when I talk crisis, it's not just those major catastrophic crises. It's it's also those day-to-day issues that can go viral and present, you know, very big risk to your organization that doesn't necessarily escalate to catastrophic crisis level, but it's still very important to, to be crisis ready for. Mm-hmm. But social media is a is an inevitable part of all of that and, or of any negative I- incident. So labeling something a social media crisis doesn't actually make any sense. Whether it started online, originated online or not, it's going to take place on social media, just like it's going to take place or be talked about in news media, just like it's going to be, you know, talked about within your marketplace from people to people. Social media is a communication platform. And if we say, well, that's a social media crisis, then you're missing the opportunity to do a deeper dive and say, okay, but what's the root of what went wrong? And how can we target that fix that, improve that, bridge that gap, whatever the case may be, so that we prevent something like this from happening again, or so that we prevent what we can and we're better prepared in the future for the unpreventable.
1: Right. So Dave Carroll, who uh, was Mm -hmm. one of the people who endorsed your book, explain how United Airlines, we are going to be talking about you again here, (laughs) explain who Dave Carroll is, what happened and why that was probably misperceived as a social media crisis when it had nothing to do with social media.
0: So this is interesting. What the nuance here is that when you're the first, it's worse. <laughs> and at the time, we could have called that, well, it's United has a cultural crisis. That's the bigger problem. Okay, so yes. we'll start with the beginning. So Dave Carroll is a brilliant musician and professional speaker and author. And he was back in 2008, I believe it happened, and it it went viral in 2009. So back in 2008, he's sitting on a United Airlines flight with his band, and one of the flight attendants looks out the window and says, or one of the passengers, I believe, looks out the window and says, oh my goodness, they're throwing around musical equipment out there, musical instruments. And so Dave looks out the window, and they're literally just like throwing his guitar around and so he's concerned he gets off the plane once it lands you know at its destination and looks at it and his taylor guitar has twelve hundred dollars worth of damage on it to it so he spent dave spent nine months chasing united phone call after phone call after phone call after phone call being transferred and back and forth trying to get them to pay for the twelve hundred dollars worth of damage to his favorite guitar and after nine months a woman finally said, stop calling. The answer is no. Point final, hangs up the phone. Mm. So Dave says, you know what? I'm a musician, and I'm going to write about this. I'm going to sing about this. And I'm going to create, and she actually told her this, I'm going to create three musical videos and tell the world how United Breaks Guitars and doesn't care about it, and that this is your culture, that this is how you you know, treat your customers. And he did. And his goal was to get a million views within a year on and as a as a cumulative over you know for these three videos, the first video hit a million views in four days back in two thousand and nine.
1: Unfortunately for United, he's a very good musician and songwriter. Oh,
0: he's brilliant, and he's hilarious, and the and it's catchy, and yeah. I mean he's brilliant.
1: It's going through my um, head right now.
0: Oh, absolutely, it can't not. And I have these visuals as I'm telling the story. I can picture you know the scenes, and they're not the real scenes. They're the scenes from the music video, but it did, and then you know, as a professional, he also was brilliant enough to to maximize. He took every single interview. I picture him and, and I tell him this, and he's like, Yep, your picture is pretty true. Where he's sitting in the car, his brother's driving him to a media interview with you know, his laptop on his lap and one two phones, one in each ear, where he is literally just maximizing on all of the hype that came from it. And as a result, you know, now he's got his book, which is United Breaks Guitars. It's a brilliant book. I highly recommend it to anybody who has a corporate culture within their organization which is anybody who has an organization with employees, And, you know, speaking career and all of that, trying to help organizations not make the same mistake as United. But to your point, so that's the story. Your question was more around...
1: Well, I think, let me add, I think the value of United stock dropped like 10% after that. Yeah. For no other reason.
0: Substantial. No, 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 no. That was the reason. (laughs) (laughs) But see, but back in 2009, this was one of the very first. So there were three incidents in 2009 that changed the game, changed the landscape. United Breaks Guitars was one of them. The other one... Was the Domino's Pizza fiasco? I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that one. Yeah,
1: it was uh, you, you talked about it in the book where some employees were uh, filmed doing disgusting desecrating a, or yeah. doing something to a pizza
0: before it went out on de- de- uh, delivery. Yeah. And then they uploaded it to YouTube. Mm-hmm. And the third one was the plane landing on the Hudson River and the fact that people, you know, uh, citizen journalists, they were called today, were. Filming it and taking pictures and writing about it and sharing about it, on, about it on Twitter before news media were even able to, you know, grasp the story and mm-hmm. publish about it themselves. So these were these three incidents that all occurred in two thousand and nine that catapulted just what is today's reality when it comes to real-time media and, you know, the challenges that we face in crisis and issue management. And the reason I'm saying that is that because Dave was amongst the first and the first of his kind, in addition, that it, you know, that's kind of where the term social media crisis originated from. And in the time, because it was so new and it was so, it had never happened to an organization before. United was the first to experience this type of thing. Clearly, if we go back to my point about why it annoys me so much, the term, they have a cultural crisis and that is their problem. And they still have a cultural crisis, which is why we are still talking about them today, constantly.
1: Yeah, and I've heard that Dave, I think it might've been Jean Bliss, who's on the podcast. She was talking about Dave Carol Llewell, and she, And she said that, after all that happened, or over the years, he's heard from so many United employees talking about the struggles they have working there.
0: Oh, uh, so I don't, I haven't, I wouldn't, I can't comment to that just because I don't know. But I, I do know that his, he's worked with a ton of other airlines as well, uh, helping them not let that happen to them or fixing their culture, and I know that, if I believe, if I'm correct, and I believe to be correct, that United used eventually his videos as training material. Not that it has helped, because they still have a cultural crisis. Right. But.
1: Well, we'll include a link, we'll, we'll include the video on your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. One other thing I, well, I want to ask about the book, and, I'm, and Melissa, I'm not talking about myself here, okay, but I want to ask you, what are some things that companies should keep in mind when they're they're dealing with trolls and you know you even talked about you touched on the issue of when should a company actually shut down a social media account?
0: Yeah the answer is ninety nine percent of the time never mm-hmm. and it's really really important that if you believe that that would be a question that was raised that would be raised or brought to the table in the event of a crisis, then that is definitely a conversation that needs to be had now so that it's not brought to the table. What I talk about in chapter 10 of the book is the Cincinnati Zoo. And just, oh, this is such a fascinating story, too, because – so at Cincinnati Zoo, Harambe, the, the gorilla was, well, a child, I believe a three or four year old child fell over, climbed and fell into this gorilla's cage or not cage, but his enclosure. And they took an immediate decision. The zoo was crisis ready. So in order to effectively manage any crisis, you have to be in a position to properly take the right action to manage the incident while you simultaneously communicate effectively to every single stakeholder group that matters. Mm-hmm. They Cincinnati Zoo was crisis ready. They did both of these brilliantly. They had a protocol. They ended up needing to shoot and kill the gorilla, which was a horrific event for them because everybody there loved the gorilla and in order to save this child's life which they did. Now they managed the crisis Properly, And they also, if you go back and you look at their communications as a result, you know, as a response to this incident, they beautifully communicated. Unfortunately for them, they were this, I don't know why it happened. I don't know just, but it did. It was this kind of whirlwind of this unusual storm where I believe even to this day, you can still probably today, you can find things on it that are new memes and new comments and new, you know, ridiculous about Harambe Harambe. and Uh they were met with so much harassment. It wasn't even just trolls. It was harassment. Again, I mean, the ceo of the company of the of the zoo his twitter account was hacked twice they received a threat to be hacked on their main account it was just relentless and it was honestly it was disgusting what took place for you know to them and it was unmerited in my opinion and so they made the choice to close down their twitter account because twitter doesn't give that they were able to set firewalls and filters on facebook so that Their staff and their community were not harassed or, you know, verbally abused. Um, But on Twitter, they couldn't. And then they received the threat of "We're going to hack your account." So what they did was they shut down their Twitter account in response to that, and so that they can build up further better security to come back and to not be such a so victimized right anymore. Mm -hmm. So this is a very 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 rare occasion. But if we look at that same example as in terms of crisis impact Be- this all of this happened online and that's one thing but when we look at crisis we look at the long term negative impact on an organization and you know on its people on its bottom line on its reputation and while this harassment was taking place online the business of the Cincinnati Zoo did not waver it managed the crisis brilliantly and their entire community rose with them mourned with them supported them understood that the the crisis had they not taken the action that they did a child could have probably would have died mm-hmm. and that was the reason behind the action the very you know tragic action that they needed to take but very purposeful and very um Proto, you know, measured out by protocol. So I find this case interesting because there wasn't a real substantive crisis to the organization because their business and their relationships and their reputation did not suffer. However, they were still subjected to this just relentless, disgusting abuse online. That, like I said, I mean, for listeners, if you Google it today or if you go into Twitter today, I I would be willing to bet that there's something that was put about Harambe today. Mm. It's just, it's it's one of those very 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 rare cases that was just such a such so unfortunate for the zoo to have yeah. to deal with
1: yeah i promise this is the last question but
0: no one <laughs> That's thing not
1: the way. one thing that you talked about that you've learned in your years of consulting is that too often professionals get confused by the difference between an issue mm. and a and a crisis an issue versus a crisis and you explained that that confusion is itself a risk. Can, can you explain what the difference is and why that is so crucial?
0: Yes. And it is, so I'm going to start with so crucial because if you don't, Properly, so part of being crisis ready or being crisis ready means that you can identify, you can properly assess, and then you can respond in a way that increases stakeholder trust and credibility in the brand. This is part of the assessment phase, is understanding and making sure that your entire team across every single department understands the difference between issue and crisis and its defining criteria. And that's because an issue can go viral and not escalate to crisis level. Virality is not the defining criteria of crisis. So in order to respond effectively in a way that increases, fosters increased stakeholder trust and goodwill and credibility in the brand, you need to be able to identify the the difference between the two so that you can respond accordingly depending on the level of severity and, and the emotional impact. So the difference between an issue and a crisis is a crisis is a negative event or situation that stops business as usual to some extent. It stops business as usual because it needs to be escalated straight to the top, the C-suite of the organization because it needs their it needs their eyes, it needs their minds, it needs their directives and their guidance and their decision making. Why? Because this negative event threatens long-term material impact on one or all of the following five things. people, so stakeholders, the environment, Business operations, the organization's reputation, and/or the organization's bottom line. So that is a you know high level definition of a crisis versus an issue.
1: And issues, I think, a lot of people f- have issues and they yes. think they're crises.
0: It precisely. Mm-hmm. Issue is a factor of business. Crisis is that rarity, uh, hopefully, that hopefully never happens. But issue is a factor of business. Issues are negative events or situations that do not stop business as usual. I look at issue management as business as usual on hyperdrive because they don't need to be escalated straight to the top of leadership to the straight to the top to leadership because they don't threaten that long-term material impact on any one of those five things
1: so an issue example would be what
0: so i actually i'll use a an example that i use in the book because i i think that it i think it's really great when you can compare apples to apples and that's a rarity so the
1: listener knows she even has a a quiz (laughs) to help you understand the difference and i I took the quiz i didn't get them all right but it was very helpful
0: Oh, good job. So yeah, so the book is being, it was also written, it's being adapted into course curriculum oh. around the world. So it was written. And also I like games, not not video games, but, you know, like board games with people. And I learned that way. So yeah, I had fun kind of making these little quizzes and games and stuff throughout the book. But yeah, so if we look at the Oscars, what happened at the Academy Awards back in 2017, when La La Land was awarded the coveted prize of winning Best Picture. And then, you know, so let's paint the scene. Everybody walks up onto the stage from La La Land and there are three acceptance speeches in when finally somebody says, oops, (laughs) we didn't win. Moonlight won. Within an instant, this situation, this story went viral, was being talked about for days about the crisis at the Oscars. And, you know, while it was happening, it was this very confusing, very embarrassing confusion that took place where La La Land didn't know how to react. Moonlight didn't know. It took them a minute to realize that this was actually, this wasn't a joke, that yeah. they actually did win. And, you know, this scramble kind of happened on stage, live on camera, and then, you know, went on. The show went on, or the show ended actually, because that's the last prize uh, or the last award. So I like to compare this one because if you look at the Oscars, if we were to say, Is and I won't ask you because I know you read the book, but uh, you know the answer. That's cheating. If we look at this and we say, so everybody was talking about the crisis at the Oscars, and the reality is that it didn't stop business as usual. Like it did not. This event did not require leadership to come down and to make decisions. It was business as usual on hyperdrive. Yes, it went viral. Yes, it was embarrassing. Yes, it was you know newsworthy, and people love to talk about it and reference it. But it was business as usual in hyperdrive. It was you know, fixed and managed, and then the show would have gone on even had there been more awards to be presented afterwards.
1: But it was an it, issue.
0: It was an issue that went viral. A yeah. crisis for the Oscars would be something like a terrorist threat. Right. That would be a crisis for the Oscars. So if we want to kind of put that into scope. Mm-hmm. However, if we look at PricewaterhouseCoopers, which PwC, who is the accounting firm that has had a 70 plus year relationship with the Oscars and they are the people that two of their partners are tasked every year with, you know, counting the ballots, determining who wins every single award, creating those envelopes with the winners names in them and guarding those envelopes and handing them off to the presenters as they walk on stage to present the award. The mistake was a human error that occurred as a result of the wrong envelope being handed off. Now let's think of leadership at sitting at home, watching this Oscars unfold, you know, having a glass of wine with their family, maybe eating a bag of chips, whatever, and this happens. Do you think that they just continued to sip their wine and put more chips in their mouth? (laughs) No, (laughs) they jumped up, and the next day we can all imagine what was happening. They were in crisis management mode. Business as usual stopped to some extent because they needed to manage the relationship that they share with the Oscars, so that they didn't lose that that beautiful relationship, that long lasting trust. And not just that, but this is an accounting firm. This is a global known accounting firm, and they risked customers saying, "Well, hey, if you if we can't trust you to hand off the right envelope, can we really trust you with our money?" Yeah, or <laughs> or they
1: might think, uh, "Are we stupid for hiring them? Am I going to look bad for having, you know, stuck my neck out and spent career capital hiring PwC, you know, is somebody going to make fun of me for that?" You know,
0: Absolutely. Am I is my integrity and my intelligence and my ability to do my to perform my job going to be put into question? Absolutely. And so we have the same incident. The same incident was a viral issue for one organization and was a crisis. Now, PwC was crisis ready and they managed it very, very effectively, which means that it never actually reached full capacity of crisis. They de-escalated it instantly to issue level and then they managed it from there. That Mm -hmm. is the beauty of being crisis ready. But the risk was long-term material impact on their reputation, on, on their relationships, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately on their bottom line. So we have the same incident, a viral issue for one organization, and a crisis or potential crisis for another organization, which is why it's so essential for organizations today to understand the definition of issue versus crisis, and then to you know go through the motion of what does that mean for us, and what are our most likely high-impact issues and crises, two different categories, that we're the most prone or vulnerable to. Doing that is part of being crisis-ready. It's a big part of being crisis-ready.
1: Yes, I'm glad we had time to uh, to dig into that. And it's a great way you explain in the book between those two things at the same event, but they were two very uh, different sides of the coin. So, Melissa, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: To not think that you are crisis ready by relying on a very probably siloed and general plan that's sitting on a shelf
1: from 2008,
0: from 2000 and even from, you know, 2018 by the, it, it, crisis ready is a it's cultural it needs to be cultural it needs to be you need buy in from leadership you need support and lead, you know proper leadership from leadership and it needs to be intrinsic throughout and permeate throughout the entire organization and there it's not as cumbersome as it probably feels or may seem when you listen to me speak it's it's about you know having the right choosing the right lens having the right mindset and taking small, proactive, progressive actions every single day in the right direction.
1: Yes. And in the book, you talk about how crisis preparedness is a program rather than a plan. And that's very central to what you've just said. So what books have inspired your work and career?
0: We mentioned Jay Baer, actually, prior to going you know, start hitting record on this. Uh-huh. I think it was prior to that. Jay Bear wrote a book in, oh, many years ago called, uh, he's written many books, all of, and his new book is coming out, which everybody should go read. Talk triggers. It's yeah. Awesome. Talk triggers. Jay is phenomenal and a crazy, awesome, brilliant leader um, in his, when what he does. But his book, Oh my goodness! Why is it drawing a blank right now? Well, now, he wrote now, uh, now. "Hate Your
1: Hug Your Haters."
0: No, it was before that. It was n- the Now Revolution. Oh, the I Now. Can, yeah, his first yeah, one I with uh, Amber Naslin. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so I read that book right at a time in my career where I was—I knew there was something here because I was seeing the risk that nobody was talking about in terms of technology and social media and you know real-time media and all of that—and I was about to pivot my my brand, my, my services to that. And I read the now revolution. And in that Jay talks for one chapter about, you know, how to kind of handle some negative stuff on Facebook. And I thought that's my, that's one of my signs. So that is when I think of a book that has really kind of empowered me, I suppose, was to really was that one.
1: Oh, that's terrific. Funny story. I, I was at a conference years ago and I, Just so you know, Melissa, some people collect signed sports memorabilia. I collect autographed sales and marketing books, which is why I was so excited that you autographed the one you sent me. Thank you. Oh, awesome. My pleasure. (laughs) And I've actually read books on Kindles. And then when I go to a conference and I knew an author was going to be there, I would buy the hard copy, put it in the suitcase, bring it just to get it autographed clearly I have issues. But I brought I did the that's same awesome. I brought the book to a conference with Jay Bear was and I got him to sign the Now Revolution. And I have since then been try, stalking Amber Naslin <laughs> trying to get her autograph on that same copy. So anyway, yeah. It, that's it's, that's too a, funny. <laughs> so but that's a, a really interesting uh, milestone. Was there another one? I I, I interrupted you.
0: No, I mean there were there were a lot of things that kind of Summed up my my yes this is what I'm doing but you asked about a book uh-huh. and that was that was uh, that's the one I think of when I think you know major impact on my career
1: oh that's a great story are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward oh, to reading
0: there's so many I have I'm so blessed to be surrounded by wonderful authors one that I'm just happens to be sitting on my desk because it just arrived today is Mike Anino's new book Company Culture for Dummies which I'm about to interview him. And I mean, we're talking about crisis ready being a a cultural thing, Mm -hmm. requirement. And so he's all about having the right culture and how to implement the right culture. So Company Culture for Dummies by Mike Mm Anino is the one that comes top and fresh up, you know, to my mind.
1: Let me mention one by the guy who told me about you, Phil M. Jones. Mm. He, I interviewed him and we published an interview about exactly what to say and then he's also uh, been on to talk about his book, Exactly How to Sell. Both, both great books, and I saw him mentioned in the acknowledgement of yours.
0: Uh, oh, yeah, and exciting news is that he has a third, the third piece of that collection coming out in October, which is exactly where to start, and I have been fortunate enough to read an advance copy, and Ooh. it is brilliant.
1: Yes, he mentioned that on the, the second time he's been on the show, and I'm excited to see that. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be just just fantastic, because I just loved his first two, so. Yeah, feels awesome. So, Melissa, how best can listeners learn more about you and the big book?
0: So melissaagnes.com is the central hub to go to melissaagnes.com. From there, the book Crisis Ready, Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World is available, well, depending on what you want. So it's available on by, you know, through Amazon. But if you want some bulk copies, it was written for the entire organization because it is cultural. So you can always get some good bulk pricing if you want some additional copies for your team.
1: Yes. And it also seemed like the, one of the most toxic, worst things that an organization could do would be to try and silo their crisis preparedness.
0: Yes. And yet it's so typical.
1: Mm. It's so typical. And it reminded me of how companies will try to silo their customer experience management. (laughs) They'll, They'll like point to the marketing person and say, yeah, you're in charge of customer experience. And it, that rarely that rarely works but I do want to mention we're gonna have a link to uh, Melissa on your episodes show notes at MarketingBookPodcast.com. and there are a couple of things that were really great resources and one of them is the crisis ready flowchart which you had in the book it folds out and you even have another one that had uh, that I liked was the uh, the rules the the crisis yes. crisis ready rules so that you really want to check those out you don't have to buy the book to get those things no
0: but... <laughs> they're free they're free and I have a new one that just came out that I just published, which is the crisis ready formula for managing controversial issues. Controversy is extremely challenging to manage because it segregates your audience automatically and it's very emotionally driven. So I have a a crisis ready formula that walks you through how to properly and successfully manage controversy. And that is also a new free resource in my crisis ready resource library at melissa
1: It's terrific. And we'll also include a link to your Twitter You are Melissa underscore Agnes. I'm at I'm marketing book on Twitter. If you want to reach out to to one or both of us to thank Melissa for being on the show, we're also going to include a link to your LinkedIn profile. And for the listener, if you're listening on your, your smartphone and you've subscribed to this show uh, on your podcast player of choice, like Apple podcasts or Google play, all these links can be found by going to Melissa's episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. So, the name of the book is Crisis Ready Building an Invincible Brand in an Uncertain World. The author is Melissa Agnes. Melissa, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: The thanks goes to you, Doug. It's been so much fun.
1: And that closes the book on episode 187 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Content Marketing World 2018. To support the Marketing Book podcast, get details and the absolute lowest price on attending, go to ContentMarketingWorld.com and when registering, use the promo code MARKETINGBOOK. And please join us next time as we welcome Bob Berg to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book he has co-authored with John David Mann, The Go-Giver Influencer, a little story about a most persuasive idea. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around.